Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for Anti-Semitism in Admissions in Higher Education with Professor Ari Kelman. And thank you so much to HEA in Denver for your partnership on this event. I'd love to pass it over to Morty to formally introduce today's speaker. Hello. Thank you, Alex. It's a pleasure once again to uh, be the uh, sponsoring synagogue from the Hebrew Educational Alliance in Denver, Colorado. Uh, we are a conservative synagogue, and we have entered into our 90th year, um, and I'm just proud to say I've grown up at this synagogue from almost from its origins um, uh, uh, in the late, in the 60s to today, so it's a pleasure to be here with VBM and our partnership. Uh, we're very proud to have our today's presentation with Professor Ari Kelman. Uh, Professor Kelman's research uh, focuses on forms and practices of religious knowledge transmission, and he holds a specific research interest in American Jewry and writes broadly about the American Jewish experience. Uh, recently, his focus has landed on questions of how American Jews come to understand themselves as a distinct community and how social science methods reveal and conceal dimensions of American Jewish life, including, and most significantly, the racial and ethnic identities of American Jews. He is the author of Shout to the Lord, Making Worship Music in Evangelical America, and Station Identification, A Cultural History of Yiddish Radio. Uh, he's also the co-editor with John Levison of Beyond Jewish Identity, uh, the 2019 Academic uh, Studies Press, and the editor of uh, Is This a System? A, Mil a Milt Gross comic reader, uh, co-authored of Sacred Strategies, Transforming Synagogues from Functional to Visionary, and together with research partners at Stanford and elsewhere, he maintains an active research agenda and publishes regularly in venues, both scholarly and popular. Uh, he serves as the chairperson of the Network for Research in Jewish Education. He is also an editor of Jewish Social Studies and serves on the executive board of the Association for Jewish Studies. It is uh, my pleasure to, at this point, to. Uh, introduce and pass the baton for today's program to Professor Ari Kelman. Welcome. Thanks so much. Uh, thank you for the welcome and for um, for all of you spending time with us this afternoon, with me this afternoon. Thanks to Alex for uh, organizing it as well. Um, my name is Ari Kelman. I teach at Stanford University. Um, I'm in the Graduate School of Education, and so my research interests revolve around questions of religion and um, questions of education, both on the sort of interpersonal social side of things, how people learn or acquire certain commitments in religious worlds, um, but also on the institutional level. And that's some of what I'll be sharing with you today. So the genesis of, so I'm gonna talk about anti-Semitism in college admissions um, in, in a historical context, specifically looking at the case of Stanford University. Uh, last year in January, I was asked by the president of the university to explore longstanding allegations about anti-Semitism in Stanford's admissions practices, and I had the chance to work with some great people as we worked through archives, did interviews with um, with alumni, 
and members of the administration um, to get a handle on this story. The story looks a little bit different than other stories about anti-Semitism and admissions. So I want to highlight the kind of West Coastness of it, which I hope uh, Phoenix-based Valley Bait Midrash and uh, Denver-based uh, Education Alliance can, um, can also appreciate. That is, things west of the Mississippi might look a little bit different. This is just an overview, kind of like a table of contents for what we're going to do. We'll talk a little bit about our methods, how we did what we did in this project, what we found. I want to talk a little about Stanford's religious history. It's an unusual place in this regard as a, a secular research institution with some religious concerns even baked in from the very beginning. Then we'll talk about admissions and where Jews figured in admissions practices and policies uh, at the middle of the 20th century, where we found evidence um, for anti-Semitic actions in admissions. And, and how that looked then in the years that followed. And then hopefully we'll have some time for Q&A. So I, was, I led a committee, I said I was uh, uh, charged with this responsibility from the president. Um, we had two charges, but there were two parts to our, uh, our instructions. One was to research the history of admissions policies and practices. The second was to make recommendations for how to enhance Jewish life on campus. I'm not gonna be talking about charge number two today, but if you have questions, we can engage with them in the Q&A afterwards. But I'm mostly gonna figure um, focus on the history of missions, policies, and practices as they bore on Jewish students. Um, in my research, I didn't do it alone. That is an important piece of this. I worked with some incredible colleagues um, around the campus, staff, faculty, and students, uh, one alumnus and one member of the Board of Trustees. This whole thing started or kind of got kicked off in the summer of 2021. Charles Peterson is a historian now at, at Cornell who wrote a, a, a blog, a substack um, post called How I Discovered Stanford's Jewish Quota. And in it, he reproduced a, a document that I'll talk about in a second that indicated there was intention, stated intention among members of Stanford's admissions team in the 1950s to suppress the number of Jewish students that were admitted. Um, this was uh, the first and at the time, the only document that illustrated or indicated that there was um, a desire to suppress admissions and it captured the intentions of certain members of the of the high administration, but it didn't capture whether or not they actually took action. And so our job was to figure out whether or not uh, they actually took action. Um, there were two, I think, contexts for the for the present study, for the, the president of the university to send us on this mission. The first, broadly speaking, is the rise of anti-Semitism in America and around the world. Uh, unfortunately, it continues to be an issue some, uh, certainly 10 years ago, I don't think I would have uh, been sitting here talking to you about anti-Semitism, um, but the world has changed quite dramatically and sharply. Um, Anti-Semitism on college campuses is also a concern um, and a rising concern in some places. Um, it is a, a slightly different issue than what I'll be talking about today, but it certainly sets the context that Stanford among other schools is really trying to reckon with an increase in anti-Semitism on our own campuses. Um, and, um, and uh, how the, the institution of the university can affect positive change in this direction. The other context is that universities um, and institutions around the country are really investigating their own histories with regard um, to their more troubling past. So Harvard and the Legacy of Slavery Project, um, the, the efforts at Princeton University to change the name of the School of Public Policy from, uh, away from Woodrow Wilson, to rename buildings or colleges at, at uh, Yale, um, named for noted slaveholders slave um, and other other efforts as well. Um, at Stanford, this has turned into an ongoing conversation so that's uh, we're trying to build momentum around called um, higher education and their leg and its legacies, in which we're trying to sort of. Um, it seems that this is more than just a series of individual events, but it seems like it's part of a larger movement. We're trying to understand that movement and how to 
continue it and keep it forward, keep moving it forward. So those are kind of the two contexts for the study. Um, and also a little bit about the two portions of our charge. Um, our methods were primarily historical. We looked at archives that were held at Stanford University and elsewhere. Um, we looked at um, supplemental sources. So the Stanford Daily, which is the student newspaper, which is archived online, the Stanford Quad, which is the yearbook. So I spent a lot of time looking at yearbooks from the 1940s to about the 1970s. Collections of the American Jewish Archives, the American Jewish Committee, the Anti-Defamation League. We did interviews with alumni. We did interviews with Jews who grew up in Los Angeles, um, but didn't go to Stanford. And I spoke with graduate and undergraduate students as well. Uh, our key findings, there were four of them. The first is that a guy named Rixford Snyder, who, which is not a name that you should know for any reason, um, but he was the Stanford's director of admissions from the late 1940s to the late 1960s. He took actions to suppress the number of Jewish students that were admitted to Stanford during the 1950s. He acted, he wasn't acting alone. He was not a rogue actor. He did, he acted with the knowledge of other members of the university administration, including the assistant to the president um, and the president, um, or, and, the, and the, sorry, and the provost, uh, neither of whom took steps to stop him. I'll talk about the president later on specifically. Members of the Stanford administration regularly misled parents and friends of applicants, alumni, outside investigators, faculty and trustees who raised concerns about antisemitism throughout the 1950s and 1960s. And finally, we don't know how many years Snyder acted to suppress the number of Jewish students admitted, but we know the effects lasted for decades. So I wanna say a word about Stanford's religious history. It was founded in 1881 um, by Jane and um, Leland Stanford. Uh, Leland was uh, uh, earned a lot, made a lot of money in um, in railroads. He was eventually a senator and I think governor of California. Um, their son Leland Jr. passed away uh, unexpectedly and tragically as a young man, and the Stanfords um, committed themselves to, uh, as it says somewhere, uh, to make all the children of California their children, and named the university in Leland Jr.'s memory. Um, the founding documents, which rolled out in the 1880s and 1890s. Um, outline what the Stanfords wanted the university to be. Um, and interestingly, it, and they founded it as a secular university. It wasn't founded like Harvard or Yale, first as a divinity school that spun into a liberal arts college, but they founded it really with the intention that it would be a secular university, except that Jane and Leland um, also stipulated that it would have some religious features. So um, Jane wrote, in, a, in an amendment to the founding documents, um, I believe that the mission of the, that the religious development of the university would be better accomplished if it were free from all denominational alliances, however slight the bond might, might be. And then she says that the services in Memorial Church must be accessible to everybody. We, there need to be services in Memorial Church, but they should be accessible to everybody. And attendance at religious services should be entirely optional and no profession of religious faith or belief should be exacted of anyone for any purpose. University, these documents, which are part of the founding documents of the university, aren't just like her vision for the university, like a mission statement, but they actually have the, because of the way they were constructed, they actually have the force of policy. So when she says that the services at Memorial Church must be as simple and informal as character as possible, and that it should be non-sectarian in nature, the university then had the, the, the administration of the university had the challenge to put this into action. Um, that it, uh, if it's free from denominational alliances, as she says, um, what does it mean to make a, uh, a secular university that nevertheless concerns a, a non-sectarian secular university? Um, uh, architecturally speaking, I don't know if any of you have ever visited the campus, 
this the, this lies at the center of campus. It is Memorial Church. Um, as you enter the sort of uh, front door of the campus through the main entrance, you go up a long drive called Palm Drive, and at the end of it is Memorial Church, standing in the middle of Old Quad. When the campus was first built, this was all the campus there was. Now the campus extends in a bunch of other directions, but this is what it was, and you you it leads directly into Memorial Church. Jane at one point said, um, "The university is my mind, but uh, the church is my heart." Um, so what does it mean to have a secular university with a non-sectarian church at the center? Um, and that's kind of, and the, the non-sectarian religious nature of the, of the campus, which goes back to its founding, carries through um, uh, many struggles throughout the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s for Jewish students in particular. And there have always been some, it seems, some Jewish students at Stanford going back to the early part of the 20th century, uh, small numbers, but still. Um, uh, the non-sectarian nature of the church meant that uh, Jews could, in theory, uh, conduct religious services in the church, but the, but the secular nature of the campus meant that they were not permitted to practice Jewish life outside of the church. It was literally against the policies of the campus that they could do that. So if they were going to do it, they had to do it within the church. There are good theological and historical reasons why many Jews would not feel comfortable doing that. Um, but they were prohibited from uh, engaging in Jewish life outside of the church, which left Jewish students and frankly, Catholic students, also with nowhere to go. Um, so it's a peculiar thing. On the one hand, the university is saying, we believe strongly in religious practice, and we believe strongly in religious community, but of a non-sectarian nature. Um, uh, and so it looked kind of like a uh, kind of liberal Protestantism, but it effectively excluded um, Jewish students from engaging in Jewish life on campus in any meaningful or organized way uh, for quite some time. Selective admissions at Stanford, like I said, Stanford has always, at least to the best of our knowledge, Stanford has always had a small number of Jewish students um, dating back to the early part of the 20th century. After the war, uh, World War II, Stanford got a new administration led by the person on the left of your screen, Wallace Sterling. He was the president for about 20 years. Um, in the middle is the admissions, the director of admissions, Rickford Snyder, who was the director of admissions for about that same time. Sterling's closest confidant and assistant was the man on the right of the screen, Fred Glover. He was his assistant. He wasn't his administrative assistant. He had other administrative assistants. He was more like a um, sort of confidant advisor, like a chief, more closer to a chief of staff was really his, um, his role, but he was called the assistant. Um, it was also during these years, I think it's important to remember, um, that Stanford really transformed from a good regional school um, to uh, kind of among the elites of uh, American higher education and global higher education. Going in immediately after the war, it, about 70% of its students came from California. Um, it admitted a lot of students from the Bay Area. Uh, um, and it was regarded fairly well, but fairly locally. No one was going to travel a long distance to attend because um, it didn't have that kind of reputation. Sterling, in conjunction with the provost for many of those years, Fred Terman, really helped build the university, helped raise its profile, helped attract um, elite uh, faculty from around the country, and really helped turn it into um, the Stanford that is sort of better known today. But at the time, in the late 1940s, early 1950s, which is where we're going to be spending our time today, uh, it, it was not that. It was not that yet. But these three people play an important role in the story that I am going to tell. The reason for that is that we, this was the document that was reproduced in Peterson's memo or Peterson's uh, Substack. Um, I don't know what to call Substack thingies, issues or 
blog posts, I'm not sure, newsletters, I guess they're newsletters. Um, and the letter was written by Fred Glover, who is the assistant or the chief of staff, to President Sterling about a meeting that Glover had with Rixford Snyder, the director of admissions, in which Glover reports to Sterling that Snyder wishes to limit the number of Jewish students that enroll. Ricks is concerned, and this is directly, I'm quoting directly from the memo, Ricks is concerned that more than a quarter of the applicants uh, are from Jewish boys. He said there are a number of schools in Los Angeles, Beverly Hills High School and Fairfax are examples, whose student bodies run from 95 to 98% Jewish. I wanna highlight those two schools because they become really, really important to this story um, uh, in a second. They weren't quite 95 to 98% Jewish, but they were, they, they drew, we know from Jewish demographic studies of Los Angeles in the early 50s, that they drew from two of the most Jewishly densely populated neighborhoods in the city of Los Angeles. Technically Beverly Hills is its own city, but I'll call them Los Angeles for brevity's sake. Finally, he said, if we, affect, if we accept a few Jewish applicants from these schools, the following year, we get a flood of Jewish applications. So Rickford's, so Snyder is concerned that they're getting too many applications from Jewish students. And he knows that there are these two schools in Los Angeles that run, uh, that, uh, that are very densely Jewish and that send a lot of Jewish applicants and perhaps a lot of Jewish students to Stanford. Finally, he goes on to say, Rick's feels, Rick's uh, referring to Snyder, feels that the problem is loaded with dynamite. And he wanted you to know about it is he says that the situation forces us to regard our stated policy of paying no attention to the race or religion of applicants. And then in probably the most damning part of the memo, he says, uh, I told him I thought his current policy made sense. That this was a matter of the utmost discretion. I would share this with you. So essentially, we have a we have this letter saying that Glover saying that Rixford Snyder says, I need to reduce the number of Jewish applicants. Glover says, it runs against our policy of not paying attention to race or religion, but I told him that it made sense. I told him he could go ahead and do it. So we have the tacit okay. He gives this letter to, or he, he delivers the letter, we think. It's written to Wallace Sterling. The salutation says, Dear Wally. Um, and, uh, uh, and the letter is clearly uh, written for President Sterling to tell him about the memo, that, to tell him about the meeting that he'd had with Snyder. Uh, who knew about the memo? This is where one of the things that is a little unclear. It's unclear as to whether or not President Sterling ever read the memo or ever received it. You'll see up at the top of the memo, you probably can't see it that well on your screens, but it's a series of check marks and some uh, initials and lines. This is a blow up of that. Uh, in the 50s and 60s and into the 70s, when memos were circulated around the office at Stanford, it was convention that they would rubber stamp a list of the people in the office of the president with their initials. And when you'd read it, you would put a check by the initials to indicate that you'd read it. Now you can see, I think it's three from the bottom. It says FG, FSG, that's Fred Glover. We know that he read it because he wrote it. Um, at the tippy top is, uh, we know that uh, Margaret O'Connor read it. We know that uh, Doug Worth read it. He was, uh, uh, um, I'm sorry. The, your, your faces are blocking that part of my, my presentation that I can't figure out how to, Get your get your people to move, but we know that the provost, we know that the provost read it, and we know that his assistant, the executive assistant Lillian O'Connor, read it. Um, at the very top is the place where uh, Wallace Sterling would have signed it or indicated that he read it. He did not draw a check mark on that memo. We do have other memos that we know he read that he also didn't write a check mark, 
But the absence of a checkmark indicating that he read it leads us to is, is, is inconclusive. We don't know actually whether or not he read this memo. Now, had he read the memo, um, he could have responded to Snyder and said, that's a terrible idea. Why would we restrict the number of Jewish students? He could have stopped Snyder from taking action, um, but we don't know if he read the memo. And, uh, but we do have evidence that he didn't stop Snyder um, from taking the action that he intended to. And we have two primary sources that helped us to figure this out. Uh, one was evidence from recruitment. So when the university would recruit in the early 1950s, it would send people from the admissions office out on trips, on recruiting trips to specific high schools. And we have many of their, um, their uh, itineraries, their travel itineraries. And so this is a travel itinerary from, um, uh, from 1951. So the memo, sorry, the memo is uh, February 1953, if I'm not mistaken. It's dated right there at the top. Um, this um, is from 1951, so essentially two years before the memo was written. And you can see down there at the bottom in the circle, um, and there up top in the circle, on Tuesday, January 9th, Snyder visited Beverly Hills High School, University High School, and Santa Monica High School. And on the bottom, we see that on Friday, February 9th, he visited Hollywood High School, Fairfax High, and Susan Miller Dorsey High School. We found other itineraries from earlier in the, from uh, his predecessor, Al Groman, that he too visited Beverly Hills High School and, and Fairfax High School um, <clears throat> in his admissions trips and his, uh, in his recruitment trips. Um, but after um, 1953, which is when the memo was written, those high schools drop off the itineraries of recruitment visits to Southern California. They just don't appear. Um, and uh, we found that pretty consistently, that they disappear from the recruitment trips from, uh, from after, the, after, uh, after 1953. The second source of evidence that we found with regard to um, uh, admissions was in enrollment data. Now, you have to understand that the university would get X number of applications. They would have Y number of spots, and they wouldn't. They didn't keep folders or files uh, of students they didn't admit. So why would you do this? So we don't actually even know. We don't have a. We have a general sense, but not a not a great sense of um, how many students were admitted in general. We know how many students were admitted in general, but we don't know what percentage of applicants were accepted. Um, and we don't have the applications of the students who were rejected. They don't, uh, they don't, they were destroyed over time. They don't exist. So we don't, we couldn't even say, if we wanted to even say like, okay, we'll use, you know, distinctive Jewish names or something to see if Jews represented a disproportionate number of students who were rejected, we couldn't do that because we don't have that data. And so it, it was hard to say, it was hard to find it, but we found it actually in enrollment data. So the registrar is the person in the university that is in charge of enrollment. Typically the registrar handles like general enrollment in the university, and they handle enrollment in certain classes and so on. And in the 1950s and into the 1960s, Stanford's registrar published annual reports of students, <clears throat> um, and, uh, uh, and it gave all kinds of demographic information about these students, how many were married, how many were not married, what genders they were, their grade point averages in high school. Um, and it also indicated where they came from, and specifically, and what states they came from, and if they were international. And it also gave us information about what schools they came from. And this turned out to be crucial. So this is the registrar report from 1953. And you can see in the bottom, um, uh, Beverly Hills High School, they, they accepted students from Beverly Hills High School. Now, um, 
the problem, or one of the challenges that we ran into was that they only reported uh, admissions in three-year uh, blocks. So if you look at Beverly Hills High School, it says that 67 students were admitted between 1949 and 1952. So this covers three years of admissions, 49-50, 50-51, and 51-52. What we don't know, because we could not find this data anywhere, is whether or not, how, how those 67 students were distributed. Was it you know 20 students a year? Was it 20 students, 20 students, and then 27 students? Was it 66 students, and then one student, one student? Uh, or 65 students, sorry, one student, one student. Um, this we don't know. But what you do see, and if you remember that the, the memo was written in January or February of 53, um, right in the middle of admission season, uh, you see the beginning of a pronounced drop, both from Beverly Hills High School and from Fairfax High School. And remember that these were the two high schools that were known to Snyder to have uh, significant populations of Jewish students. You see Fairfax disappear entirely, basically. Um, and you have Beverly Hills High School, which had previously been in the 40s, had been a high school that sent a lot of students to Stanford. Um, you see those numbers drop uh, precipitously. So we had to we tried to figure out uh, who um, more precise ways of measuring, um, but we couldn't do that. But what we were able to see is if we know that Fairfax dropped to one in 1953 to 1956, we know that either they let in, and we know they could spread over three years, either they let in no students, no students, and one student, they let in no students, one student, or and no students, or they let in no students, no students, and one student over that three-year span. And this, the, the math, uh, the sort of combinations of possibility allowed us to calculate, um, not precisely, but to, but to generate all of the possible combinations of student admissions uh, for these years. So this is the calculations of enrollments from Fairfax High School. Fairfax was easier because at a certain point we got down to zero. Some of the years had to be zero and then we were able to sort of uh, calculate backward and forward. And you see that in 1950 and 51, five students, seven students, maybe six students. By 1955, you get zero uh, or one and the numbers don't recover particularly strongly. We didn't see declines like this in any other school. And we didn't see a kind of expansion of the number of schools that Stanford drew from to account for the percentage decline that we saw in these two schools. Um, uh, the numbers for, um, so I think, so uh, the numbers for Beverly Hills High were much higher. So there were many, many more combinations. I think we came up with 125 different combinations. All of those are published in the report, which you can uh, find online. But the upshot is, we believe that this is evidence that the admissions office did take steps to reduce the number, to limit the number of Jewish students by taking a fairly crude approach, which was just to shrink the number of students taken from these high schools. Now, we don't know if the students taken from these high schools were Jewish or not. It's impossible to know. <clears throat> also, because uh, the student files don't report on the religious identity of student admits. Stanford did have two questions about religion on their applications up until 1950, but that changed. So for the years in question, we don't actually know. Um, and by the way, the, the religion questions um, were often left blank and uh, were often sort of not answered uh, accurately, it seems. So even those would be inconclusive. 
Um, and because Stanford had that provision that I quoted from Jane earlier that said we, we don't uh, demand a profession of faith from any student, um, some took that to mean that the university itself would not ask students for their religious identities either in applications or once they've enrolled in, uh, enrolled on campus, that to ask a student, what religion are you, would uh, amount to demanding a profession of faith that was counter to the founding documents and to the Stanford's vision. Um, so we, we know something happened in the early 1950s, early to mid 1950s, um, based on the enrollment data. Um, we also have a, a sort of parallel narrative that emerges from the administration about what was happening, which is nothing. They said that nothing, well, nothing was happening. Snyder says in 1956, as far as I'm concerned, we do not consider race or groups of any sort. If one group applies heavily, then a larger number of them will be admitted. In 1956, this is in the Stanford Daily, the student paper, uh, Snyder says, uh, Stanford admissions procedures don't discriminate. So over and over again, when asked in the public about whether or not Stanford um, has quotas, or whether Stanford limits students, student applications based on identity factors, Snyder denies it, denies it, denies it. Um, in 1954, December 1954, so remember that the memo was written in January 1953. So this is almost two years later, one admission cycle later. Uh, judge Gus Solomon, who was a Portland-based judge, who had, um, he was an alumnus, and he um, wrote recommendations for students from Portland. Um, and remember, and so Gus Solomon was fairly involved in the campus at the time, uh, even as somebody far away. Um, and he, was, he wrote a note to Glover saying, actually he wrote a note to a colleague in the, in the school, in the law school and then forwarded the note to Glover. And he said, I'm, I'm hearing from people in the community that, uh, that you're um, limiting the number of Jewish students who are coming. Um, is this true? I hear there's a quote on Jewish students. So Glover replies to Solomon. Now remember, Glover was the one who wrote the memo. So Glover knows very well what's going on. He spoke to Sterling and he spoke to Snyder both. So Glover writes back to Solomon and says, we're never accused of being anti-Catholic or anti-Methodist, but the charge does seem to arise sometimes when a Jewish candidate is involved at the university is anti-Jewish. So he pushes, he, so not only does Snyder deny it in the newspapers, but Glover also denies it very strongly in a letter directly to somebody who had given support to the university. Actually, in, in Solomon's letter, he says, um, listen, if, if this isn't true, I want to know so I can tell people that it's not true, like so I can dispel these rumors. Um, and Glover replies and says, it's not true. We're never accused of being anti-Methodist, but sometimes we're accused of being anti-Jewish. He then goes on, if we had such information, if we knew how many Jewish students were applied and how many students were admitted, we could defend ourselves, but actually we don't maintain those. We don't maintain those data. Those data. We don't collect those data. So, because um, if we did keep it, then we would be open to charges that we were able to um, establish quotas. So we don't keep the information, um, and therefore you can't prove that we have quotas. He says he goes on to say it disturbs me deeply. Disturbs us to have such rumors circulating as you have heard. I hope that the above information will answer the questions that have been raised in your own mind. So he basically says to Solomon, you are projecting, this is crazy. It disturbs me so deeply that you've heard these rumors. They are not true. Um, I hope that I've dispelled the, the issues that have been raised in your own mind. Glover is of course lying. He knows that Snyder had intentions to suppress the number of Jewish students. He knows that Snyder singled out Jewish students. 
um, and he knows that he uh, and he knows that actions were taken, um, and he uh, he denies it um, to Solomon. Um, now, lest you think again, Sterling, the Snyder or Solomon, or Snyder or or uh, or um, whoever are acting kind of without uh, you know checking with one another. This is a, a handwritten note from Snyder to Lover about another letter that was written in response to a, an inquiry from the Anti-Defamation League in which Snyder takes a very similar tack. He says, this is crazy. We've never done such a thing. How dare you? Um, and he writes, okay, Fred, okay, Glover, I'm holding the letter pending a reply from you before dropping in the box. And then on the bottom, it says, Mr. Snyder notified 725, that letter is okay. So here's an exchange between Snyder and Glover. Snyder checking with Glover to make sure the letter is okay. The letter is uh, adamant denial that there's actions taken against Jewish students. Um, and so there's a, there's a, um, uh, a partnership here, a, a collaboration between members of the high administration to not just take action against your students, but to deny that it happened in the public. Um, part of, I'm gonna skip the question of quotas, but um, part of the problem is that the questions were often framed in terms of quotas. Um, and the university, Stanford never kept quotas. Remember that it took action just by suppressing the number of students taken from particular high schools. And so when questioned about quotas, the university could deny it. We don't have quotas, even though, so technically it was true, they didn't have quotas, but in practice, it was effectively the same thing. Now, people who grew up, Jewish people who grew up in and around Los Angeles seemed to know very well. Um, it seemed to have been common knowledge in the Jewish communities of Los Angeles that uh, there were limitations on Jewish students. So Robin Kennedy, who graduated in 1968, um, uh, said, uh, I heard she went to um, North Hollywood High School. Uh, she said, I heard when I was in high school that there was a Jewish quota at Stanford. Um, Paul Seaver, who was a faculty member at Stanford and came to Stanford from Reed College, he said, the kids I knew at Reed said, you can't go to that place, they don't admit Jews. Certainly not from Los Angeles. And the kids were by and large from Los Angeles. I couldn't believe it, he said, but it was true. Finally, Mark Mancall, who was a, a history professor who went to Hollywood High School, he said, I graduated Hollywood High School and I was told don't apply to Stanford because Jews have a very, very difficult time getting to Stanford. So he didn't apply to Stanford. He later joined the faculty as a history professor. Um, all of these were not oral histories that I conducted. They were conducted by the Stanford Historical Society. They're in the archives at the university, but they attest to the fact that if you were a Jew living in Los Angeles um, in the 1950s and 1960s, you it was common knowledge that Stanford had limitations on Jewish students. Um, this was corroborated by our interviews. Like I said, I did a bunch of uh, oral histories with Stanford grads and some people who grew up in Los Angeles and didn't go to Stanford, Jewish people. Um, if you were Jewish and you lived in Los Angeles, you you had heard that there was a, a, a limitation on the number of your students that Stanford would admit. If you were Jewish and you grew up elsewhere, you may not have known that. So it was localized in Los Angeles, and this again helps to triangulate the claim that we make, which is that it was it was a high school-based approach. Um, and when he acted against Beverly Hills High and Fairfax High, that information rippled out in the community. So again, just to refresh the conclusions, and then we can move to question and answer. Uh, Snyder, who is Stanford's director of admissions, took, took steps to suppress the number of Jewish students admitted to Stanford in the 1950s. We know that he acted with the knowledge of other members of the administration, including Glover, the assistant of the resident, um, and Doug Whitaker, who's the provost, neither of him, whom took steps to stop him. We know that the administration lied regularly. Uh, I have evidence also that's not in the presentation, but uh, from the late 1960s, from 1966, 
Um, when uh, the president of the Board of Trustees, a guy named Dick Guggenheim, who was Jewish and from San Francisco, uh, asked about uh, these charges, Snyder again denied them. So he denied them not just to the Anti-Defamation League, not just to alumni like Gus, Snyder, Gus uh, uh, um, the judge from, from uh, Portland, um, not just to families who wrote in, but also to faculty and to the Board of Trustees, the president of the Board of Trustees. Um, and finally, we don't know how many years Snyder suppressed the number of Jewish students. Uh, we just don't have, that's, there's no record of that anywhere. Um, but we know that knowledge of rumors about the actions that he took, the understanding that Stanford was not a place for Jewish students, um, rippled for decades into the 1960s and into the well into the 1970s, even as Stanford's admissions policies changed. Um, so I'm going to stop there, having given you um, probably more than you ever needed to know about Stanford University and its admissions in mid-century. Um, and I'm happy to move to questions and answers. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Professor Kalman. Um, if anyone would like to ask a question or make a comment, please feel free to raise your hands and, and unmute. Hi, Alan. Yeah, hi. Um, excellent presentation. Just a quick question. Um, you clearly described the situation in the 50s, 60s, and maybe 70s. What is the situation today? So if I want my grandchild to apply to Stanford, is it, um, will my grandchild who's clearly Jewish and has a Jewish name have a more of a problem than a non-Jew? I, I don't believe so. I don't work in the admissions office. I did interview the current uh, Dean of Admissions as part of my project. You have to understand that in the 60s, or in the 50s and 60s, admissions were uh, handled by a very small number of people. When Snyder started, um, he had three people in his office to handle all the admissions. And uh, there wasn't a very big discrepancy between the number of people who applied and the number of people who were admitted. Um, over the decades, that's changed. Uh, there's an article just in this morning's New York Times about the number of, I think the average number of campuses a student applies for is like 10. Um, so all campuses are seeing huge numbers of applications, um, but they're, uh, the numbers of students they admit are not changing that fast. Um, so in the early 50s and into the 60s, applications were read by a very small number of people. Um, there was a rating system that they used but essentially all, and they were, they worked in conjunction with the faculty committee, but they did not get along the faculty committee and the, and the office of admissions. Um, and all of the decisions were eventually led back to Snyder who made them. That is, he was empowered by the university to make the final decisions. That is not the case now. Um, I do not know how many people the current admissions office employs, but they employ a large number, more than three. Um, uh, they employ a large number. They also employ seasonal readers, who people who are not sort of full-time employees, but come on during the period of admissions to read the applications. <clears throat> Stanford gets somewhere between 65 and, and 85,000 applications. At least they did last year, two years ago. Um, they still admit approximately 1,500 students, right? So the processes are very different. They do what they, I, I believe they do their best to mitigate biases of all kinds. But as you know from the case that's currently um, uh, move, uh, has been heard by the Supreme Court and on which a ruling is expected, I think in June, case against um, 
North Carolina and Harvard, um, that questions of admissions biases, biases and admissions are still very strong. Those were brought on ostensibly on behalf of Asian Americans, um, but the process has changed so much and they really put in safeguards against sort of systematic biases and the way that they were able to do uh, back then. Multiple people read the applications, multiple people read different parts of the applications. Um, I, believe, I believe that they are doing their best to keep it, um, to keep the process fair. Um, part of that is, I believe we're in a different place than we were in the 1950s, but also part of it is just the nature of the admissions process has changed so dramatically. Thank you. Hi, Lauren. Hi. Um, so my question is, I know that your study was on Stanford, but how common was this right across the US? I, I know as a Canadian, oh, before the mid sixties, pretty well McGill University of Toronto, we know that they had Jewish quotas and we know that it was hard to find a Jewish uh, faculty member. And the general idea was go to the US they're not as anti-Semitic, but was that just wishful thinking on a Canadian's part? <laughs> and um, you know, was it was NYU the same? Was just a question. It, yeah, no, it's a it's a it's a great question. Um, the um, the Ivies, Columbia, I mean, particularly Columbia, Harvard, uh, Princeton, Yale, uh, are uh, practices of anti-Semitism in the Ivies in admissions were, are well documented. There's a fantastic book by a historian, a sociologist at, um, at UC Berkeley named Jerome Carabell. The book's called The Chosen. Um, that documents very careful, very meticulously the anti-Semitic practices in admissions in all of those schools. Um, uh, and so those are, those are well documented. Um, and they carried through through the 1940s, I would say, and, and in some cases persisted uh, after the war. Um, what's unusual about Stanford is that it happened somewhat later, but Stanford was kind of on a different timeline than those universities. We know that it happened somewhat uh, also a bit later um, at, at some of the large Midwestern public universities. They did not use, they were worried about political uh, radicalization on their, what they call political radicalization on their campus, which meant that often politically active Jews from New York who would, who would go to the Midwest campuses. So they, they instituted a kind of regional limitation, right? They stopped taking so many students from, uh, from the East Coast, um, which effectively reduced the number of Jewish students. Um, so it, it was certainly not universal in the United States, um, but it, it did happen and where it has happened and our effort and the efforts at, at uh, some of the Ivies has helped to really surface and, and tell those stories. And I think similar investigations are happening at other campuses where uh, people believe it to be the case and then the matter is you know, going, to, uh, going to find out uh, uh, whether or not it was. Whether it's better or worse than Canada, I, I don't know comparatively, it'd be hard to say. Thank you. It was bad up here. It was really bad for a long time. And the faculty question is a, is a different question entirely. We didn't, we didn't deal with that, but a good one, an important one. Thank you. Would anyone else uh, like to jump in? Also, speaking of Canada, I'm from Canada as well. And uh, my grandfather had always told me he wanted to be a doctor, but ended up being a pharmacist because the medical school had quotas and it was just too difficult. Yeah, the um, in the early 19, in the, in the late 1940s, early 1950s, the Anti-Defamation League and the American Jewish Congress um, launched a campaign that they called Crack the Quota, which was about um, getting rid of admissions quotas against Jews, but kind of against everybody. Um, 
all minor all American minorities um, in in professional schools specifically dental schools, medical schools, law schools, um, and they were they were the effort was quite successful, actually. Um, and there's a a, a very good um, project that was done at Emory uh, on the Emory Medical School, or sorry, the Emory Dental School. Um, that, uh, that sort of documents both the process and then the universities, both both the the history of anti-Semitism in admissions to the dental school, um, and then the university's uh, public apology that they made in, I want to say 2012, but I might be wrong about that. Uh, hi, Joel. I see your hand is up. Stanford's apology um, seemed to do two things. It seemed to both recognize these historic wrongs and to speak to efforts to improve life on campus for Jewish students. Can you talk about that latter piece? Sure, sure. So um, like I said at the beginning, we were asked to not just do the historical research, but to make recommendations for enhancing Jewish life on campus. Um, and so our first, our first uh, recommendation was that the university apologize um, for its actions. Both for both for its actions and for denying them for so long, um, and then we had a list of uh, uh, I should know this, but seven or eight different recommendations. And the university has been actually, and I thought the president's apology, which you can also find online, was um, was very powerful. Um, I was very I was uh, really proud of him for taking the steps that he did. Um, the recommendations are being acted upon. Some are easier to act on than others. So one of the uh, I would say big, small recommendations was to make life easier for students with religious or cultural concerns to get the housing and dining that they need. So, for example, if I'm an Orthodox Jewish student and uh, there's a key, an electronic key card to get me into my dormitory, I need a, an accommodation or the university ought to make an accommodation so that I can get into my dormitory uh, on Shabbat without violating Shabbat. Right. I can't use electricity. Or if I ask to be housed in the dormitory where kosher dining is served, I would like to be placed in that. Don't put me in some house uh, across the across the campus. So that's one of them. The other is uh, Stanford's on the quarter system, which means that our school starts um, relative late relative to a lot of the semester schools. Um, and so one of the big recommendations was at the university, and and often enough, um, the first day of school or the first day of new student orientation lands on one of the high holidays. And we asked the university to take steps um, to schedule its calendar such that those two things don't coincide, forcing Jewish students and faculty and staff for that matter, but really students to choose between going to school, going to class on the first day of classes or uh, going or celebrating um, Yom Kippur or Rosh Hashanah. The university has taken steps to do that. Um, uh, one was that the um, uh, there were, uh, one was the incorporation of uh, modules on Jews and anti-Semitism in um, what we would currently call kind of DEIJ, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, education efforts on campus. The university is doing, um, I think, taking steps towards that. Um, one of them was that the university should sort out its or its relationship with Hillel. Um, Hillel at Stanford is an independent entity. It's not under it's not under the administration of the university. It stands apart from the university. This is the case in a lot of universities around the country. Um, but uh, but occasionally is sort of it's a source of some tension. It's sort of murky. So we asked them, they enter into conversations so they could um, clarify that relationship. That's obviously taking a bit longer. Um, so on the part of the administration, on the part of the university, what the university could do, uh, one was that the the, the student government um, 
2016 and 2019, the student government passed uh, resolutions that they should that they should have anti-antisemitism training. Um, and so we asked them to put it into practice, which they've done. I participated in that training. I think it was it was good. We could do better, but I think it was good. Um, so some of them are taking longer to roll out um, than others. What we were able to make recommendations were about were sort of institutional structural things that could happen on our campus, led by um, the administration, the faculty, the staff. Um, what we can't control for obvious reasons is the behavior of students. Um, and uh, we're seeing this year, and we saw last year, you know, increased sort of encounter anti-Semitic encounters uh, between students, which is painful to see. We're hoping that the efforts that we're taking kind of on the structural administrative level are going to help affect positive change across the campus as well. But, um, you know, it's a, it is it is as everything a work in progress. But I'm happy that we're university uh, took such active steps to respond to our recommendations and to make good on them. And I uh, I think we're I think we're making progress. Thank you. Uh, hi, Marissa. Hi. The question that I had was um, you kind of pointed out where the dip was in admissions for the Jewish students at the the two like LA universities. Do you know when that like switched going positive again? And I'm curious if it was like, if it really was just like a bad apple and once like Snyder and Glover left, is that is that all that was needed to kind of like switch the tide back around? And then yeah, I have a second part as well, which is, um, I went to Stanford and part of the, like what I remember is part of the holistic admissions process was um, that they would like review you on a regional basis. Like they would want to compare you to people in your city and your state. So I'm kind of concerned that it's still, it would be kind of easy to again, discriminate based on like your, your school makeup. Yeah, they still do. Well, I can answer the second one first and then I'll do the first one. Um, it uh, uh, they still it's still organized regionally, so they have kind of like the dean, and then there's regional. I don't know what they call them exactly, regional directors, basically. Um, uh, I think that they're supported by a, a, a robust infrastructure and a lot of other people. That I think you could. I mean, there's always the possibility. I think, but I do think the I do think that the university is is trying to mitigate to mitigate those kinds of biases in the process. That's kind of all I can say. It's still done regionally though. Um, uh, as far as the first question, it's a little, it's it's hard because it's a moving target. So the numbers of students from Beverly Hills High School and Fairfax High School never go back to the way they were in the early 1950s. Um, but you also have, um, you just have changed the, like you have Stanford taking more pains to admit students on a geographically diverse basis. Stanford, by the end of the 1960s, was also admitting, you know, half, give or take, of its students were from California, and they were really trying to get out of California. Um, that said, when they did recruitment visits to, like, the New York area, they went to elite private schools. They didn't go to public schools. So, again, there, there's probably a, a bias in the recruitment areas. I believe that changed over the 70s and into the 80s, certainly. Um, Gene Fetter, who took over admissions in the mid '80s, really put steps in place to equalize uh, the admissions uh, to equalize the admissions processes. So, um, when they sort of took steps against the students from Beverly Hills High and and uh, and Fairfax High, uh, those numbers never 
those numbers never sort of rebounded. And there was a um, sort of lasting impression, although it's only an impression, as it can't be sort of statistically established, that Stanford had fewer Jewish students than its quote unquote peer institutions. That it was always kind of the population of Jewish students to Stanford was somehow it was low. Um, but it's hard to say what low is because um, it's not, a, there's not an absolute measure. It's, it's all relative. Um, until very recently, however, I can say, Stanford had only an, an intermittent uh, daily prayer minion for students. Until fairly recently, Stanford didn't have regular kosher food for students. And so if you were an Orthodox student who needed a daily prayer minion, who needed kosher food, um, Stanford would not be a particularly appealing choice because it didn't provide those elements of Jewish life and those students probably went elsewhere. And so, and, and then if there was no sort of critical mass of religiously engaged Jewish students, it's hard for the new waves of religiously engaged Jewish students to want to come because there's no community. And it kind of was a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy at a certain point. Um, those things seem to be changing, although again, it's very impressionistic on that level in terms of the numbers. Does that answer your question? Hi, Alan. Yeah, one, one, one other quick question. Um, uh, I've heard often that all of the Ivy League schools um, want to diversify as much as they can, and therefore they try not to take too many students from the same school. So if student A goes to a school and the, and it's a very competitive school and does very well, would they have, is it true that they would have a, a lower chance or lesser chance of getting into an Ivy League school than somebody who went to a different school and didn't even do as well as that other student who, who's, you know, maybe some number six in the, in the class or number 10 in the class, but would have been number one in that other school? Uh I can't speak to any of the policies at any of those schools, so I can't give you a firm answer on that. I do know that the case that's now before the Supreme Court, um, the ability of schools, particularly private schools, to um, use diversity as a, um, as a dimension through which they create and construct a class of students because the diversity of students that are being admitted is an educational benefit to the students and to the university. Diversity is a key part of the defense that is being used in this case. Um, so I can just say that. Now, what they mean by diversity, does it mean race? Does it mean region? Does it mean school? Um, that is not for me to answer. And I certainly couldn't speak to the policies of any, I couldn't speak to policies of any school. Um, but, uh, but I do know that admissions nowadays, like I said earlier, is highly competitive, far more competitive than it ever has been. Systems that are in place uh, may or may not be equipped to deal with that kind of competition and trying to sort of um, make decisions like the kinds that you're describing, I think are very challenging. Thank you. Um, are there any other questions or comments? All right, well, thank you so much, Professor Kelman, for joining us today um, and thank you. Oh, wait, sorry, Joel, I saw your hand was up. Did you wanna ask something very quickly? <laughs> sure, I, I'm, I'm wondering what steps the you pretty well described a few different steps that the school is taking to improve life for Jewish students. And you mentioned that there's a separate issue of what individual students may or may not do that the school doesn't have control over, which is true to an extent. Um, 
but the school also has the ability to create and enforce policies. The school obviously has policies for Title VI and Title IX and et cetera that both flow from an administrative level and exist at a code of conduct level that faculty, staff, and students are responsible for. So I guess to what extent are Title VI protections for Jewish students, which under the Department of Education includes the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, to what extent are any of these being filtered down into school policies and then being enforced um, without mentioning any recent controversies that arguably had lack of enforcement? Sure, so Title VI and Title IX are both federal law. They're not university policy. The universities are responsible for implementing them, but they're not sort of university law. That is, the university can't change them. Um, <clears throat> the university, I think, is, um, the question is not just uh, about, you, from my perspective, the question in, in those contexts is not just about Jewish students, but it's about all students. As the university create a policy that treats all students equally and tries to encourage a community that um, that instills kind of respect and tolerance and a desire to be to learn from one another um, in all of our students. And so <clears throat> um, I, I think that my university and my hope is that other universities are really doing their best to do that for everybody. Um, the specifics of it, the implementation or the sort of, um, you know, application of the IHRA definition on our campus or other campuses um, uh, has not yet come to um, like our university has not adopted the IHRA as its working definition of anti-Semitism. And um, frankly, uh, I don't know um, if uh, like um, when things happen between students, uh, if applying a strict standard is actually the best way forward, or if perhaps there's a more kind of educative um, I would say procedurally justice-oriented approach that could be better. I do know that the university is uh, is we are required to uphold Title VI, Title IX, um, and all the rest. Uh, and I, I believe the university is trying to do that as as well as possible. It's I, I think what what we're trying to do, at least on my campus, the way I understand it, is not look at it as a sort of implementation policy punitive approach, which is what. Um, but is to try to get ahead of it, do educative work on the front end so that we don't have to put those policies or employ those policies in a punitive way. Um, that, that's at least the approach that I support. And it's the one that our recommendations um, advocated for. Thank you. I'll try this again. <laughs> thank you so much, Professor Kelvin, for joining us. And thank you all for being here today. Uh, next week on Thursday, March 23rd, we will be joined by Dr. Johnny Schnitzer for Evil, A Brief Biography. Uh, that'll be at 10 a.m. Pacific. So we hope that you can join us for that as well. And uh, thanks again for being here and have a good rest of your day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Bait Midrash podcast. Remember, that you can join our email list at valleybaitmadrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmadrash.org donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.